Friends, and a special welcome if you're joining us for the first time. We are coming in for a landing on a series we've called Fully Alive. And before we get to our conversation today, I just need to take a moment along with you and thank Randy and Ryan for the last couple weeks. If you could help me do that. Yeah. Great stuff. My family was on a vacation and I was tuning in and watching via the live stream and just couldn't be more proud of the guys. Uh, but I do have one uh, bit of, of concern and I wanted to share that with you. It has to do with Ryan's talk a couple weeks ago because one of the things I always do is I, I check iTunes, which is one of the places you can get the messages from Keystone. And I actually took a screenshot for you. It's, it's very troubling. Let's just check this out. What you see here, these are our, our podcasts. These are the videos. And on the top one here, it says radical rest. That was Ryan's message. And then there's this little E here by this, which means that someone marked his message explicit. I also would like to point out that it is the most popular one. I, I don't know how I feel about that, but that's okay. Nonetheless. Yeah. So uh, week five, fully alive. Um, and if you haven't been with us, let me kind of catch you up for the, for the framework of the series. Um, Basically, each week I've begun by asking a really thought-provoking question, and it goes like this. Um, what if what God ultimately wants for your life is the same thing you ultimately want for your life? Uh, maybe said a little more simply, what if God is ultimately for you? And if you grew up in a religious environment, um, that may be a new thought. Uh, for a whole bunch of us that grew up in church, we had a very different sort of picture of God that we either were taught or were caught. Uh, you know, this week I had uh, coffee with a friend and we were talking about this and said, what did you think of God when you were growing up in church? And he, without missing a beat, looks at me and he goes, oh God, when I was growing up to me was Zeus. You know Zeus, right? Yeah, from Greek mythology. Yeah, he was like up in heaven, sitting on a cloud, maybe some pillars, and he had a lightning bolt and he was watching, right? And at any moment that I step out of line, he was going to zap me. And so he said there was a lot of fear there was a lot of shame, there was a lot of guilt, and it was like I was petrified to break God's law because of what might happen to me. But, but as we've said uh, during the course of this series, this isn't the picture that Jesus offers us of God. If you were to say, well, Jesus, how should we think about God? I mean, as we follow you, how do you want us to think about God? And, and without missing a beat, Jesus would say, well, he's your heavenly father. And, and not only that, he's for you, even in moments of despair, frustration, and failure. And he hates it when we sin, not so much because it breaks his law, but sin hurts people and sin hurts us. And so God wants us to turn away from it and return to the path of life. The fact that Jesus came to show us what this new life is, is very clear when you read those accounts of his life too. In fact, one day Jesus says to his followers, I have come that you might have life and have it to the full. I have come that they, and that they would be all of us, may have life and have it to the full. Full tilt, full color life. Here and now, Jesus didn't just come to rescue us for later. He wants to show us what it looks like to be fully alive here and now. And by following his example, one step at a time, we add more life to our life. And that is something we want for us. And that is something that God wants 
for us. So in this series, um, we've looked at five different ways that we've been invited to partner with God to bring more life to our life. And today, as we wrap up, we get to talk about something that I think is probably the most applicable of all of these conversations. I want to talk to you this morning about the power and the potential of the words you speak to shape the relational environments in which you live in both positive and negative ways. And if you think about it, we know this to be true. Words are incredible things. I spent some time just reading online different philosophers and what they've said about words. And one that jumped out to me, just this idea that words create worlds. They have a power to shape reality. And so we need to know how to use them effectively. They can shape relational environments in which we live. That's why it shouldn't surprise us at all that the biblical authors talk a lot about words. In fact, a thousand years before the time of Jesus, Israel was ruled by a king named Solomon. Solomon collected things and Solomon collected wisdom. He believed the greatest gift he could give to future generations was to collect the wisdom of his day, to record it and bind it together. And that collection of wisdom made its way into the Old Testament or Hebrew scriptures in a book called Proverbs. And at one point during this collection, Solomon writes the following. He says, life and death are in the power of the tongue. In other words, life and death are contained in our words. And he says, and those who love it will eat its fruits. And I spent a lot of time trying to figure out what he was talking about. And I'm pleased to report I have no idea the second part, but that's okay. That's okay. Basically, just notice with me that Solomon says that our words are full of potential for good and evil. They actually can nourish or poison our relationships. Words always have direction. They're always taking creation somewhere. If they're moving towards life, they bring about good things. I made a list for us here. Um, Good things like encouragement and hope and love and peace and unity. That that sort of stuff that you think, man, we need more of that in our lives. Uh, But but they can also be moving in the other direction. They can also be moving towards death. And when that's the case, they, they bring about bad things like anger and slander and jealousy and racism and judgment and deception. Our words have the power to do real damage in the world. But if you think about it, you already knew that. Uh, Can you remember the last time someone hurt you deeply? If you're like most of us, it was something they said that initiated the wound. And the opposite is also true. Can you remember the last time you hurt someone else? Odds are it was something you said that generated the injury. Now, it, it, you, ever, you maybe even said it, and as soon as the words came flying out your mouth, you wanted to grab them and bring them back. Ever had that experience, right? But once words are released, you can't take them back. The damage is done. And, and that's why what we learned on the playground, though catchy and memorable, simply isn't true. You remember the rhyme? Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words can never hurt me. It's a lie. <laughs> In reality, words can do way more damage than sticks and stones. At at times, we carry damage from things people said to us for decades. And friends that are counselors would tell you that much of the work that they do is trying to help people unpack and understand who said what to them and that the fact that they believed something toxic. And and again, sometimes, sometimes for decades. That's why respect for the power of words became an expectation for and even an identifying mark of early Jesus followers. 
in a New Testament letter written to Christians living in Ephesus, a first century pastor named Paul encouraged Christians this way. He said, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth. And unwholesome talk is sort of Paul's catch-all way of saying harmful talk. It's a way he refers to words that injure people and hurt relationships. Things that are detrimental physically, mentally, and emotionally. So do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth. And as he continues, he says, but, and this is one of those big buts of the Bible, but, sorry, I like that, but only, some of you will get that later, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs. So Paul, what, how should we use words? Well, you want to be helpful. You want to build other people up, encourage them according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. Your words as intended by God should benefit those who listen. You need to approach each day asking the question, how can I use what I say to encourage other people? And by the way, Everyone needs encouragement. As I was preparing this week, I came upon a great quote from a man named Truett Cathy. He is founder of a little uh, chicken restaurant called Chick-fil-A. Maybe you've heard of it, right? He also is the inventor of the chicken sandwich. So well done there. Uh, and if you all wanted to go after lunch, you can't because they're not open Sunday. Sorry about that. <laughs> Here's what Truett Cathy says. It's his observation about who needs encouragement, kind of identifying them. He says, how do you identify someone who needs encouragement? That person is breathing. There you go. <laughs> Buy more chicken. Right. That's, that's kind of how that goes. So, yeah. So now, it, that's interesting and easy to understand. But if we're honest, it's not natural for most of us to encourage others with our words. In, in fact, this week I came upon an insight that really resonated with my experience. According to a relationship research organization called the Gottman Institute, uh, they, in their research, have decided that for most of us, for every one encouraging, helpful comment that we make, we also make six critical, unhelpful comments. In other words, for every one positive, thanks for being a great husband, thanks for being a great son or daughter, your work on that project was incredible, you really went the extra mile today, well done. For every one of those, we verbalize six, why don't you ever listen to me? Why can't you do things right? Why can't you be more like your brother? I can't, I can't believe you forgot to plan for dinner again. Like one to six. And as I read that, I thought, boy, I think that's true because my wife <laughs> recently encouraged me to be less critical. And I need to be. And if I'm honest, some days my ratio isn't even one to six. It's probably more like one to a hundred. And I'm not a mean person, but I am a critical person. And as I thought about it, it's even more tricky than that because I don't really choose to be critical. It just seems to come naturally to me. And based on the research, I'm not the only one. In, in fact, if anyone has ever said to you, I just can't seem to do anything right in your eyes, this is what they're pointing to. You've fallen into what comes naturally for all of us when it comes to the way we use our words. So now that I have us all feeling convicted and awful, <laughs> I have some good news. It doesn't have to be this way. And in fact, our big idea for today says it best. It goes like this. The antidote to a critical spirit is intentional encouragement. As you move towards intentional encouragement, you will find yourself moving away 
from a critical spirit. And so what I want to do with the rest of our time today is help you change your ratios in positive ways. I want you to see how very practically you can use your words to become more of a force for good on planet Earth. It's better for your family. It's better for your friends. It's better for your neighbors. And it's better for you. Choosing to become a more encouraging person will make you more fully alive. So to help you change your ratios, what I want to do with the rest of our time is explore four other insights about words from the Old Testament book of Proverbs. And just to be clear, it was hard to pick four. There's actually 150 different Proverbs dealing with the power of words somebody counted. So here we go with the first one. It goes like this. Words can make life sweeter. Here's how Solomon articulates this principle. He says, pleasant words are a honeycomb sweet to the soul and healing to the bones. And I love that. It's like right at your core. Pleasant words are healing. And he says they're like a honeycomb. Now, when I think about honey, I think about what you think about. I, of course, think about the Cracker Barrel Biscuits. Are you with me on this? Hallelujah. They are a spiritual experience and have ruined many a paleo diet. They, br- they bring them out in a basket and they are warm and they are steaming and then there is butter and then there is honey and I lose all self-control. That's how that goes. But anyway, ancient, in, in the ancient world, honey was a really big deal. Ancient Israel's story as a nation begins when God leads them out of slavery in Egypt, through the wilderness, and eventually into the promised land. And if you said, how does the Bible describe the promised land? It was always a land flowing with milk and honey. Honey is a picture of abundance and blessing. It's a picture of life at its best. And so when the author writes that pleasant words are like honey, he's writing that pleasant words can make life sweeter. They move life in the right direction. And I'm convinced he's right because I've seen this in my own life and in the life of my friends. As many of you know, um, we have four boys. And in my family, we have a tradition right before bed. I brought a picture of the boys. This is uh, the first time they got on an airplane. So that's kind of fun. That was over spring break. Um, But each of our boys, each night, we spend a little bit of time with them. And we tell them that we love them. And that's not a big deal. But to be clear, we tell them we love them even on days that we don't like them very much, right? (laughs) They're not here right now, so I can say that, right? Yeah, those days that are full of discipline and struggle and frustration, we still want them to know we love them. We want to affirm their value apart from their behavior. And do we have to? No. But it really does make life a lot sweeter, and we've done it for so long. Um, I was paying attention this week um, and I was talking in my third born who's eight years old and he seems to have had enough of this I love you thing because this week I was tucking him in and pulled his covers up and I said, Colton, I love you, buddy. And he looked back at me after a long, slow blink and said, I know, dad. You tell me every day. Can you leave now? So good. I thought that was like a victory. So anyway. It just makes life sweeter. This, this principle also makes me think of a friend uh, who has three teenage children. And a few years ago, he went through an extended season of unemployment. And to be clear, it was, uh, he wasn't totally unemployed. He had a couple of part-time jobs. He was delivering pizza. But it was a struggle for months. And they traveled through the holidays, and there wasn't as much under the Christmas tree. And he constantly felt like he was letting his kids down. 
It's like they were at a time of life where they, they had, our expectations were climbing and he just couldn't meet the expectations. And he says, you know, for Father's Day that year, um, they gave him a, a note. And he opens a note and he reads the note and it basically says, Dad, we just wanted to thank you. We know the last stretch has been incredibly difficult. And thank you for doing whatever it took to make sure we had what we needed. And he's telling me about this and he gets tears in his eyes. It's like a present reality to him. I mean, he's since found employment, but there was something so sweet about that moment. He said, I will have this note for the rest of my life. And what's interesting is, is that if you think about it, the note didn't change anything. He still was unemployed at the end of reading the note. And yet it changed everything. It shaped the emotional environment of his home and it pushed even deeper the love that he had for his kids. It was a big, big deal. Okay, that's the first principle. Enough mushy stuff. Moving on. Number two. Here we go. Number two goes like this. Words can wound. And here's how Solomon says this. He says, reckless words pierce like a sword. And notice he doesn't say wicked words or evil words because words don't have to be intentionally evil to hurt. Reckless words are those words we speak in moments of frustration or carelessness that, well, that can sort of draw blood, right? Reckless words often echo in our ears years after they're spoken. And in my experience, um, it's pretty easy to slide into some reckless words. So consider the following completely hypothetical observation or hypothetical situation. Um, it has to do with the way YouTube doesn't help our battle against reckless words. Have you seen YouTube ever? Uh, it's full of all sorts of interesting cat videos, but it also is full of instructional how-to videos for those of us that think we can do more than we probably should. So imagine again, hypothetical situation. Imagine that your man van needs brakes. Now, if you're not familiar with a man van, if you're a man and you drive a van, that's a man van. So, okay. So your man van needs a brake job and your wife tells you to take it to a shop with trained mechanics because you don't know how to change brakes. And you say back, oh, I can do it. I just found a video on YouTube that shows me how. And in this moment, she gives you the look. You know what I'm talking about, the look, guys? I mean, it, yeah, the look is something that God blessed women with because I had the look from my mom when I was growing up. And then as soon as I got married, my wife started giving me the look. Okay, this is when I'm talking about me, but I'm just saying the look is a real thing. So... Upon returning from the auto parts store, you jack up the car, you remove a wheel, you climb under, you're a bit claustrophobic, but nonetheless determined, and you place one of those 500-watt halogen work lights right next to your head, um, and as the heat begins to radiate, you think to yourself, you know, they had the LED one on sale for $9.99. I probably should have done that, but I didn't, so you keep moving. And uh, as you struggle to remove the caliper, your back begins to spasm. And so in a moment of desperation, you call to your fourth grader and you give him a mission. Unfortunately, it's a mission that he's ill-equipped to pursue. You say, I need a 3 8 inch socket, quick. And your kid runs over to the toolbox and he's standing there looking at all these tools and he has no idea what a socket is, right? But while you're waiting, you actually accidentally burn your hand on the work light and you begin speaking in tongues. And you're... So <laughs> 
And, and your son returns moments later to say, Dad, I don't know what a socket looks like. And in a moment of, of just uncalculated abandon, you say to him, why can't you do anything right? Yeah. And as, as he kind of limps towards the kitchen door, it, it's invisible, but you're seeing like a little trail of blood because reckless words, reckless words can pierce like a sword. Or, or imagine this with me. Imagine some parents who who don't think that their 15-year-old daughter is listening. And so after dinner, uh, they begin to talk and they're frustrated because she's been increasingly socially withdrawn since eighth grade. And she doesn't seem drawn to other kids and other kids don't seem drawn to her. And they've tried everything to sort of help her, but they just, they, nothing seems to work. So they sit at the dinner table and just begin to vent. And in an uncalculated moment of frustration, the dad says, you know, I think, I think if she'd work a little harder at how she looks, then maybe, maybe the boys would pay attention to her. And she hears. And they don't know she hears, but she hears. And it's no exaggeration to suggest that she may be bleeding years from now because of a string of careless words that inadvertently drew blood. We need to be careful what we verbalize in moments of frustration because it's often in these moments that our, our guard goes down and the reckless words are no less powerful. So that's the second observation, words can wound. The third observation actually comes from the second half of the same proverb and it goes like this, words, words can heal. Here's how Solomon says it. He says, reckless words pierce like a sword, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. And in the Jewish world, wisdom was simply the ability to connect choices and consequences. So Solomon says, the tongue of the wise, someone that thinks about the power of words, actually has the potential to bring healing, to bring hope, to bring life. Imagine, um, imagine this scenario with me. Uh, when you married her, she was perfect. And you remember the wedding and you remember the reception and you remember the honeymoon because you went somewhere warm and there was a beach and there were seagulls and there were rainbows and there were unicorns. It was amazing, right? And then you get back home and three months later, you realize that the perfect woman you married is dealing with wounds from reckless words spoken to her by her father. And the more you hear about it, the more you realize that his words were as critical as they were relentless and they struck her to her core and gave rise to profound insecurities. And if, you, if you're in that situation, part of your job as a good husband is to help her heal and not to inflict more wounds by poking at her insecurities. But, but it, really is, it really is a choice that everyone in that situation needs to make. Or, or perhaps your husband Perhaps he comes into the marriage with previous damage, right? Uh, he has some significant door dings from his time on the road of life. And growing up, he was in a home where he was starved for affirmation. And now uh, you realize he's going to get it at any cost. And in this situation, you have the opportunity with your wise words to help him heal and to encourage him. You offer him unconditional respect in a world of conditional affirmation. And over time, he begins to heal. But we should never underestimate the power of our words to move things in the right direction. So at this point, um, we've gone through three and some of you are thinking, you know, this is really interesting stuff. And um, 
you should have bought the LED light. But um, yeah, I, uh, yeah, I don't really have a problem with words until someone goes after me, right? And then like their meanness brings about my meanness. And if that's you, lean in. Here you go. Number four goes like this. Words can diffuse tension. Words can diffuse tension. Let me ask you a question. Has someone ever thrown a verbal bomb at you? You ever had that experience? And in that situation, what do you tend to do? As Solomon sees it, you have two options. Here's what he writes. He says, a gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. So a gentle answer turns away bad things, but a harsh word just amplifies the problem. And we all know this to be true. I mean, imagine a guy walks into work and as he's walking through the front door, he glances at the clock on the microwave and he realizes he's late again. And his wife is standing in the kitchen and she has an apron on and she's covered in flour and the entire kitchen is trashed and she has her arms crossed and he senses a disturbance in the force, right? (laughs) And she locks eyes with him and he quickly learns that not only are things behind schedule for the evening and dinner guests are expected in 30 minutes, his children, and in these moments it's always the other person's children, have you noticed that? His children have been nothing short of demonic. And in this moment, he is the enemy. And so she pulls the pin and throws a verbal bomb at him. And she says, how could you be so inconsiderate? Did you really expect me to cook and clean and get ready for these guests all by myself? And then she drops the ultimate, like the nuclear bomb, when she says, you never help with anything around here. Now, what he says in that moment is really important, right? (laughs) Because we guys, and this is not bragging, are predisposed to get legalistic in this moment, right? We want to say, oh, I never do anything around here. Well, that's interesting you should mention that because just last Tuesday, I was in the half bath and it overfloweth the trash can. And so I picked it up and I dropped it into the kitchen trash can and then put it back. So it is not technically true that I don't do anything around here. If he says that, bad things are going to happen, right? What he says in that moment will determine the course of the rest of the evening and whether he sleeps in his bedroom or on the couch that evening, right? If he's gentle though, he might avoid an explosion. Now, if we're honest, it's not only the wife that throws the verbal bombs. Again, uh, imagine this with me. They had agreed post-Christmas to cut back on discretionary spending. But they never really defined discretionary, okay? And so at the end of the month, He's seated at the kitchen counter, inputting receipts into his laptop, and he notices something strange because there's the normal credit card and then there's the Target credit card, which gives you 5% off, right? And he's looking and he realizes that his beloved has traveled to the land of Target 15 times in one month. And he's thinking, I didn't even think that was possible. What in the world could you possibly have purchased at Target 15 different occasions during the same month? And then he begins to think about the fact that there is a new candle in the half bath that smells like cut grass, (laughs) which he wasn't sure why anybody needed. 
And then he started to realize that there was a lot of stuff that appeared to come from the dollar spot all over the house as well. And he starts to think, okay, candles that smell like grass and stuff from the dollar spot. If that is not discretionary, I do not know what is. The whole dollar spot is discretionary. That's why it's there, right? And so as he storms into the presence of his wife, who's reading the Bible on the couch, <laughs> he throws a verbal bomb. And what she says next will be critical because it will shape the emotional environment of the evening because a gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Friends, I guess what I'm trying to say is that your words matter. They shape your world. They shape your relationships. And that's why your heavenly father, who is for you and who loves you, encourages you, invites you, even commands you to be careful with your words. And so um, as we kind of come in for a landing, I thought I wanted to just offer a few suggestions. If, if something you even realize, where would I even start? So here's, here's what I would suggest that you do. And it's what I've done. So number one, monitor your ratio of positive to negative comments. Just as you're going about your day, just pay attention to the fact that you tend to be a little more negative than maybe you even realize. And you can also note the fact that you're not really choosing to be negative in those moments. It's a bit like when you go to a restaurant and they have all the dressings, but you've been a ranch person since eighth grade. And you say to the waitress, I don't know what sort of, uh, you know, what sort of dressings you have for salad options. And she lists like 37. You go, I don't have the ranch. Right? Because you always have the ranch. And like your wife probably looks at you like, you always have the ranch. Why do you even try? You know, whatever. But it's like you choose ranch without even thinking about it. And for a lot of us, we choose to be critical without even thinking about it. So just pay attention and monitor your ratio of positive to negative. And then at the end of the day, maybe give yourself a grade, scale of one to 10. And then over time, and do this for a while and each day and see if you can move the needle in the right direction. The first step is simply to pay attention. The second step is really practical and it's a seven day challenge. Okay, so it's, it's Palm Sunday today, Easter's next Sunday. For the next seven days, here's what I would suggest that you do. You are surrounded by people who need encouraging because they are breathing. So discipline yourself to choose one person per day to intentionally encourage. And if you have a quiet time in the morning, uh, maybe just pray, God, who would you have me encourage today? And then do it. Send the text, send the note, make a phone call. Now, if you're a millennial, your phone, you don't know this, but you can actually talk to people on it and not just text. So you could try that too. Your mom wouldn't know what to do if you called her. Okay. She's like, what's wrong? Who died? I don't know. Right. Yeah. But just send a note, send a text, have a conversation. You will never Believe the power of intentionally encouraging words until you have seen it for yourself. So that's step two. Um, encourage one person per day. And number three, and this, this will just happen. You don't have to choose this. If you get done with the seven days and you're having a blast, keep going, right? It'll just make it a rhythm in your life. And then get addicted to being intentionally encouraging. And when you do, you're going to find that you become a force for good on planet earth and you take a step towards becoming fully alive. Would you stand? I'll close this in prayer.
Heavenly Father, we thank you for loving us when we are unlovable. We thank you for the grace that meets us in that spot where we have failed. We thank you for the grace that awaits us when we try to be less critical and continue to be critical. But we thank you for painting a picture of life that is better than our current one and inviting us to follow after Jesus. I pray you give us courage as we take an honest look at how we're living and bring to mind those people around us that we might use our words to bless. We thank you uh, for who you are. We thank you for the way your love has invaded human history and changed everything. And as we await Easter, as we await the celebration of the resurrection of your son, I pray that that this week um, we would remember once again how much you love us. And so we bless you, we thank you in the matchless name of your son, our savior, Jesus Christ, we pray. Everyone said, amen. Friends, we will see you in seven days for Easter.